You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Folks, Domecast weekend upon us yet again, and hopefully the weather treats us better than the past couple days have in downtown Raleigh. This is Ben Brown with the Insider State Government News Service hosting this week and broadcasting, so to speak, from deep within the News and Observer's headquarters on McDowell Street, uh, surrounded as usual by my favorite journalists in the state, uh, Colin Campbell, Lynn Bonner, and Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. And yet again, a a truly loaded week, Uh, committee meetings on fire, a a sort of jolting one that I sat in on yesterday that had to do with digital data security and what happens if someone successfully hacks into the state's networks. There's a committee studying that right now. Lots happening. Um, And if you're living and breathing, you've either been loving or hating the fact that we're fully into the caucuses and primaries right now. And with North Carolina's primaries coming up in March, Just a month away, we still have some debates to televise uh, specific to this state. But Colin Campbell, um, getting everyone to commit to televised debates isn't automatic. And candidates may have some reasons on, you know, why they don't want to debate or don't care to debate. You know, and and you've kept a tab on that. And it sounds like some really prominent incumbents who have primary challengers aren't into it. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this is interesting to watch, especially in the sort of the... um compared with the national scene. I mean, the national, the presidential race, it seems like there's a debate on TV like almost every single night of the week now. Like the Republicans debate almost every week, it seems. The Democrats uh, just added a, a series of additional debates. Uh, so there's really no shortage of opportunities to see those guys on TV mm-hmm. going at it, uh, making their case. Um, you're going to see a lot less of that uh, here in North Carolina, at least going into the primaries, maybe more so in the fall, uh, in part because the uh, leading candidates are not eager to jump on debates. And of course, there's a a sort of political reasoning for that is if you're way in the lead, it doesn't really work to your advantage uh, politically to appear alongside someone who has far less name recognition, far less odds of support than than you do, and, and sort of appear as equals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sort of in keeping with that, uh, Time Warner Cable and WRL uh, have both uh, tried to organize debates. And as far as we know, uh, only two of those are, are definitely going to happen. And they're, they're both in the Democratic side of the, the U.S. Senate race. Um, one of those is is Time Warner uh, at the end of uh, very last day of February the 29th will be hosting uh, in conjunction with the League of Women Voters of North Carolina and High Point University, which is going to uh, physically host the event um, with the uh, Democratic candidates for Senate. And at this point, uh, Deborah Ross, who's the sort of I guess considered the front runner in that, raised the most money, pulling the best, uh, has not committed. Uh, although that she her campaign has not said she won't be there, but just that they have some concerns about the format and uh, some of the qualifications. Um, Kevin Gr- uh, Griffin and Chris Ray, uh, the two other Senate candidates uh, that are, are fairly well-known, um, they definitely will be there. So it could just be a debate between the two of them if Ross doesn't come. Time Warner on the following night, uh, same location, wants to host a debate among the Democratic uh, gubernatorial candidates. That one, we've heard nothing from Roy Cooper's campaign about whether he plans to attend or not. He hasn't okay. given a yes or no to the organizers. He won't. The, his campaign won't return our calls about the topic. Um and that debate, as I understand it, is not going to go forward if Cooper doesn't join in because League of Women Voters has a, a longstanding rule that they don't do single candidate debates. So you're not going to see 
something like that Tillis debate <laughs> yeah, a couple years ago where, you know, Ken Spaulding is just going to debate an empty chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Roy Cooper is not there to debate Ken Spaulding, Ken Spaulding doesn't get to have a debate. Um, and then on the Republican side, sure, yeah. you're not going to see anything at all. Um, and that's largely because the, the main campaigns, the incumbents, Richard Burr, Pat McCrory, their campaigns are not interested in, in participating in any sort of primary debate. Uh, the argument from the Burr camp is that uh, his op- opponents in the primary, at least, are not very well known, that they're not running serious campaigns, which is debatable. I mean, Greg Brannon's campaign has been fundraising. They've been traveling the entire state. He pulled fairly well when he ran for Senate two years ago. Uh, there's a solid argument for him getting an opportunity to debate Senator Burr. Um, and the McCrory side, obviously, he's up against Robert Brawley, a former state legislator who's been hammering him on this whole roads issue down near Charlotte and, and a variety of other right. things. Mm-hmm. Uh, his campaign basically says, in response, they gave me a, a response that didn't really quite answer the question, but basically uh, effectively was saying, voters know who Pat McCrory is, they know his record, and he looks forward to uh, comparing his record with whoever the, quote, liberals nominate uh, for the fall. So that basically says, you'll see Pat in a debate, but he's not going to be in a debate before the Democrats nominate his opponent, and it's the general election. So so, um, so no, no, no primary debates on the GOP side at that level. So, so I, I guess that's also to say there's not we're not going to see a debate, at least in this context, with Robert Brawley and Charles Moss going at it or or even Greg Brandon. There's also Larry Holmquist and Paul Wright. Uh, yeah. And part of that is the um, I think the the main debate sponsors, again, would be Time Warner and uh, mm-hmm. League of Women Voters. And as I as it was explained to me yesterday by the news director for uh, Time Warner, Rick Willis, I believe was his name, um, League of Women Voters has a thing where they won't do single candidate debates. So you have to have at least two candidates that are involved for uh, them to be willing to sponsor debate. On the Time Warner side, they've got a process where they need to be able to establish uh, qualifications to participate, that you've got to be pulling over a certain threshold. I think it's about 10%. Mm -hmm. You've got to be fundraising. You've got to be campaigning statewide. And by their standards, people like Charles Moss, Larry Holmquist, Paul Wright, these candidates that that have a very low profile don't quite pull at that level. So so really, even if if, uh, Burr and McCrory uh, agreed to debates. Most likely the debate would be a one-on-one with Greg Brandon uh, on the Senate side and with Robert Brawley on the gu- gubernatorial side. Right. So, you know, and and all along, actually, you know, of course, since last year, maybe even before that, uh, the, the presumptive has always been it's going to be a McCrory-Cooper race in November. So we're probably going to see a debate uh, in the fall as we get closer to November with those two, at least. Yeah, that's Surely. that's definite. And then maybe a series of debates. Certainly, we'd, we'd like to see more opportunities to, to see the two of them, uh, you know, debate the ideas and the, the issues. So uh, we'll, we'll look forward to that. But uh, it's unfortunate we won't get to see a, a, a little bit more of the, the candidates uh, going into the, the primary. You know, the uh, the polling in, in uh, the last month or so has indicated that particularly among the, the Council of State races and some of the others, uh, the majority of the voters are undecided, uh, mm-hmm. particularly on these races uh, like uh, U.S. Senate with the Democrats. Uh, the, the candidates don't have a huge pro- high profile. The, the primary is coming up really fast because it's earlier this year. Um, and it's kind of unclear what people are going to do when they get to the polls. They're, they're going to know who they're going to vote for on the, the presidential side, presumably. But when they work their way down the ballot, 
ballot, they're not going to recognize some of these names and, you know, things like the insurance commissioner race and stuff. And um, there's sort of limited resources out there to uh, find out who these people are and, and make a decision on, on who your guy is, a guy or woman is. Right. And of course, fundraising has a big plays a big part in reaching your audience. Uh, what's up with fundraising at this point? You know, numbers keep coming out. What's what's new? Right yeah. Now? So this week, uh, you know, we uh, Deborah Ross's campaign on the Senate side uh, and Richard Burr's campaign as well were, were quick uh, last week to highlight their big numbers. Uh, Deborah Ross's campaign was uh, close to half a million dollars, I think, uh, raised around 400,000 or so. Uh, Richard Burr was a, a bit higher than that with a, a lot more on hand just because he's he's been around and has been sort of able to amass uh, fundraising money uh, over the last few years. Uh, we finally got the other uh, Democrats' uh, reports this week. They they released those to us on Thursday. Um, and in the case of Chris Ray, he's kind of coming in second among the, the Democratic contenders for Senate. He'd, he'd raised around – it was like – about $47,000. He spent most of it um, uh, already, so he started the year with not a whole lot in his his campaign accounts. Uh, Kevin Griffin, the other candidate, is actually doing worse than uh, than Ray on fundraising. He only raised about $100 from individual contributors, but mm-hmm. he's mostly been funding his campaign through a $12,000 loan that he's given the campaign. Uh, so unless both of them are able to do some serious fundraising uh, in, in January and February, they're going to have a really hard time getting their message out. Out and and most of the stuff that people are going to be hearing going into the primary is just going to be from Deborah Ross. So th- this is a good segue talking about campaigning. You know, when we're covering the legislature in an election year, our senses become a little bit heightened regarding when legislators are doing their work as legislators and when they're campaigning to be reelected as legislators. But y- you've been looking at where legislative staffers fit in to all of that. Uh, legislative assistants also working as campaign staffers, for example, which seems like a pretty common practice. Is, is this a big deal? Why do we have to keep our eye on this kind of thing? Yeah, well, it's uh, you know it's perfectly legal for someone who uh, takes on a, a day job, getting a government salary, they're working in a state legislator or a congressman's uh, office on the, the staff side uh, to then uh, take on some campaign work on the side. Because as a government employee, you have a essentially constitutional right to participate in the political process. But it has to be on your off hours. You can't be using government resources, government email, computers, offices, or any time when you're on the clock to be doing this kind of uh, campaign activity. Uh, and what we're seeing is uh, this is most common, I think, in Congress, not so much at the legislative level, although there are a few, such mm-hmm. as uh, House Rules Chairman David Lewis, that have their uh, the same staff that works for them as, uh, as their government office folks are also helping to run their campaign. Um, and that sort of uh, became apparent to me, uh, sort of started this story was a week or so ago when we got a, a news release saying that one of David Lewis's staffers, uh, his sort of top aides, Greg Gephardt, was going to be leaving the uh, the uh, legislative office. So we get a press release from another staffer, Mark Coggins, that day from the uh, the legislative office saying, you know, we're going to be sorry to see this guy go. He's going back to the district. And it didn't say what he was doing next. So then the next day we get a t- press release. It's again from Mark Coggins, but it's from the David Lewis reelection campaign. And Coggins is the campaign manager for that, saying we're happy to hire Greg Gephardt as our you know campaign, I think, field director or something where he's going to be staffing the, the Harnett County home office for the campaign. So uh, so you have sort of two types of, of ways of handling this. You have people who sort of take this revolving door approach where they're a government staffer for a certain period of the year and that's all they do. And then they quit that job and then they go work for the campaign for a few months and then their boss hires them back after the election to re- resume legislative or congressional duty. And then you have the folks who are, are like Mark Coggins and they're doing 
stuff in their off hours. Um, David Lewis, I should stress, uh, said very strongly that they keep a very firm firewall, right. that he and Mark mm-hmm. don't discuss campaign matters uh, while they're at the legislative building. Um, the same goes for, for folks in Congress. Uh, D- David Rouser, uh, the congressman, has two staffers who also work on his campaign, and they say you know they follow all the, the House ethics rules that, that govern that. And, and again, in Congress, it is common. Uh, a fair number of the people in North Carolina's uh, congressional delegation have staffers who are on the government payroll uh, but have also been paid by their campaign at, at some point in time. What, what kind of response have you gotten to this story? Well, there's a, a an interesting statement that was made by a couple of the, the folks that, that follow us on Twitter uh, that uh, they thought that this is sort of a, a, a symptom of the issue of low pay for um, legislative and, and congressional mm-hmm. aides, that um, they're not paid enough to pay their bills, so that they're looking for other uh, employment opportunities on the side. And the, the logical thing for them to do is that when the, the same boss can effectively hire them into a, a different job that they can do in their office hours, then, then that proves to be attractive to some of them. And of course, from the uh, the standpoint of the, the legislator or the congressman, they like having the same folks who know them well, who believe in their message uh, to help them both on the, in handling their, their government office and, and also helping handle their reelection efforts. Speaking of legislator pay, um, looks like next week at the uh, Joint Legislative Program Evaluation Oversight Committee, there's going to be some sort of mention or some sort of uh, uh, resuming of the discussion of lawmaker pay in session length and session time. So we're going to be looking forward to that. But um, we're going to go ahead and take a break. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate it. And we will be right back. In 2016, when you go to the polls, bring your passion and be sure to bring a photo ID. You see, this election, you'll be asked to show an acceptable photo ID at the polls. If you don't have an ID or if you're unable to obtain one, there are still options for voting. There are lots of acceptable IDs but only one you. This election, be seen, be heard. For information on exceptions or for help getting a free ID, visit voterid.nc.gov or call 866-522-4723. All right, we're back in the Domecast for our second segment. I'm joined by Craig Jarvis and Lynn Bonner of the News and Observer. And Craig, let's let's catch up on something that was transpiring last Friday, something that we couldn't get to um, yet as we were recording the podcast. And it ended up being a, a pretty decent weekend for Governor Pat McCrory and less so for the General Assembly. Uh, a decision in a lawsuit over an issue that pit the executive and legislative branches against each other. Uh, state Supreme Court coming in to sort it out. Craig Jarvis, get, give us a breakdown on this. Remind us briefly what the lawsuit was about and tell us kind of just what happened with it and what that means, why it's significant. Yeah, what happened is uh, last year when the General Assembly passed a coal ash legislation, <clears throat> they created the Coal Ash Management Commission, uh, and uh, said, which was a nine-member board that will sort of uh, f- figure out the, the priorities for cleaning up the coal ash ponds around the state, basically. But uh, they re- the, in doing so, they retained the majority of appointments, six of the appointments, and gave the governor only three. The governor said, this is an executive branch function, I should have majority control over the appointments. There was a standoff, and uh, the legislature didn't back down. So McCrory went uh, went to, to uh, court and sued, and uh, he uh, he won the backing of a three judge panel that said, "Yeah, you're, you're right." And uh, that appeal went all the way to the Supreme Court, which on Friday, uh, last Friday, ruled that, in fact, the General Assembly had overreached. That should be a function uh, in these limited cases uh, of the governor. So 
in an administration that's kind of had a rocky tenure so far, uh, including a lot of headbutting with the General Assembly, this was in a lot of ways a huge victory for uh, for for Governor McCrory. Um, uh, not only for him, kind of politically, but it, it also established important uh, case law in, in constitutional case law in the state. So it's a significant case. They're still figuring out the implications of it. Um, sure. Yeah. Does it does it you know does it impact uh, more than just the boards that were immediately focused on in this lawsuit? Or? It seemed like it didn't, yet the governor's uh, uh, lead counsel, Bob Stevens, is saying he needs more time to figure that out. It could uh, lap over into other council of state members and in the, in various boards related to those those people. Possibly next week there'll be some kind of a, a memo coming out that will from the governor's office that will clarify that, but uh, uh, it, it's really unclear in a lot of big ways, yet, yet as I said, a, a clear victory for the governor. So this was a majority opinion from the Supreme Court majority, so at least one of the judges was singing differently on this case. Yeah, Justice Paul Newby uh, was the lone dissenter, and uh, I, th- I think I'm not going to try to summarize his, his <laughs> constitutional analysis. Uh, I should have uh, boned up a little better, but uh, another interesting aspect is that the opinion opinion was written by uh, Chief Justice Mark Martin himself, mm-hmm. which is uh, interesting. It sort of signifies this is a a very important issue that that we're tackling here. So this has gone to the, to the the state supreme court. We get a majority decision. Um, does this mean that Tim Moore and Phil Berger are ready to comply, or do they have another angle they can take? Or no, they've they uh, they've uh, given up. They've said, mm-hmm. okay, we we we're disappointed, but we will work with the governor and uh, and make this happen. So there's going they're but they're both there will have to be some back and forth between the governor's office and the legislature. But this is the end of the road uh, legally for that. There's no other appeal. Okay, so so an end to that. But there's still some implications that we're trying to figure out a little bit. So yeah. still. A few stories to come out of this, maybe. Yes, absolutely. So, thank you, Craig. Um, so, moving over to Lynn Bonner, some some rough seas right now between some legislative leaders and the Department of Public Instruction, which is not entirely a new concept. But the latest story is intriguing, starting with a budget reduction that DPI is trying to manage, and then there's this allocation of of, of money that's meant for is it student reading improvement. But yes. then there's some wiggling and creative thinking of sorts going on. It started with uh, with a budget and uh, DPI, as it has in past few cycles, has uh, was told to cut its budget by $2.5 million. At the same time, the legislature um, increased money for what I refer to as a reading law. It's called the Excellent Public Schools Act, which in uh, in actuality sets up this giant architecture to help students starting in kindergarten uh, be able to read proficiently by the time they leave third grade. So in managing the cut, um, DPI went to uh, the state budget office and said, "Hey, look, we've got to take this 2.5 million, but on the other hand, we've got 3.8 to help um, manage this reading law. How about we use some of that um, reading money or excellent public schools mm-hmm. act money to backfill uh, the the cut?" And the letter in October uh, from June Atkinson to the then budget director said some of these funds could be considered to cover administrative costs that could possibly help offset some of the budget reduction. A few weeks later, uh, Lee Roberts wrote back saying, essentially, no, uh, you can't do that. Former state budget director, Lee Roberts. Right, Mm -hmm. said um, uh, it would be inconsistent with the enacted budget. Uh, And that's a quote from his October 28th letter. Uh, It turns out that 
DPI went ahead anyway and submitted a budget request that essentially um, reduced some uh, some positions, but then refunded them using this excellent Public Schools Act money, this reading right. money. So essentially, they took two million bucks that um, would that the legislature intended to spend for uh, to for this reading law, essentially tutoring and reading camps and and some other things, and used it to pay and showed they would use it to pay for administrators. Um, so all of this uh, came to Phil Berger's attention, right. and he is was demanding an accounting. Uh, June Atkinson, who uh, who is a Democrat in a forest of Republicans, um, said, well, no, this is not what we're doing. But clearly, um, budget documents show that that is what they wanted to do. There was uh, there was a lot of uh, heated discussion. And yeah, it, it got and pretty fiery it, on it social media yes. and press releases. Yes. And, um, and particularly uh, in a meeting um, this week where uh, one of the Republican senators, Chad Barefoot, was saying, well, are you going to tell me for sure that you're not using the money this way? And um, and she said, yes, you know, I can assure you of that. But uh, it is a, you know, a backtrack from what they had wanted to and, and intended to do just last last month, where they uh, clearly showed that that was their intent. And it all goes into this complaint that you hear a lot among legislators, which is we're spending too much money on central office mm-hmm. and not enough money going to the classroom. This really com- plays into that complaint where, you know, they were using money that legislators had intended to go to right. reading. And, for and that's the, what Roberts was getting yeah. at, right, where he was saying it doesn't jibe when the legislature specifically reduces the DPI budget from the general fund and then separately marks money specifically for the Excellent Public Schools Act. He's saying it doesn't jive when those two separate decisions were made and one's being used to comb over the other. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And using money really uh, to pay for the most central of central offices. Right. And and we have a new budget director, uh, Andrew Heath. Has he weighed in on this? Yes. He wrote a letter yesterday commenting on that um, that January 8th budget request saying, no, um, I'm not going to approve this. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens next. Um, we're going to go ahead and take a break. But, 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 Lynn, is there anything else we need to know or follow with the well, story? Well, I think you know we're in election year, and there's another budget season coming up. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny on this. I think, and it might even come up in in the uh, in the campaign. We'll see. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you, Lynn, and folks. We will be Thanks. right back. Understanding your finances is a key to a strong financial future. Don't be the one who gets left behind. Visit feedthepig.org for tools and tips to get started on the path to financial stability. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. All right, folks, we're back, and now it's time for... Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. Headliners of the week. We're going to go around the table and quiz our panelists on who they think is the most prominent person in the headlines this week. 45 seconds to argue a case. Uh, Let's start with Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. Craig, who you got? 
Well, uh, squeaking into this week is uh, the announcement that Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, will be at Duke University next Wednesday. This is part of his uh, uh, national cancer moonshot uh, effort, which is uh, which the president mentioned in his State of the Union address and uh, committed a billion dollars to kind of, as they say, break down the silos, share data better and figure out what they can do better to uh, to uh, kind of up the ante on uh, the cancer game. So this brings uh, this brings uh, Joe Biden to the triangle. And so we'll give him the nod. Joe Biden nominated for headliner of the week. Let's swing over to Colin Campbell. Forty five seconds. Who you got? All right, I'm going to do an unorthodox choice this week. I'm going with uh, rapper Petey Pablo, and uh, I'll tell you what his connection to North Carolina politics is. It's, yeah, so uh, yeah, this might be in the bag. A, a lot of the politicians around the state obviously have been getting into uh, Carolina Panther football pride uh, with the Super Bowl coming up this weekend. And this week we saw a video of uh, Congresswoman Renee Elmers uh, doing the, uh, the the dabbing thing that uh, uh, Cam Newton does uh, to, to put out a video of this. Um, and, and you don't often see members of Congress uh, in, engaging with the, the rap community. And, and in this video of uh, Renee Elmers dabbing, uh, she <laughs> has a soundtrack of the uh, P.D. Pablo song that, that he put out sort of to be, uh, show his can- Panthers pride. I believe it's called uh, Carolina Colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a it's a it's a pretty ostentatious, I'd say, rap song. Uh, so it was kind of uh, surprising to see it in a, a video coming from a, a member of Congress's office. Uh, and, and because of that, I think Petey Pablo deserves headliner of the week. Well, he is the pride of North Carolina. I, I can say that with confidence, at least at one point in time. And it seems like he's making a case again. Um, let's go over to Lynn Bonner, News and Observer. Who you got? Yeah, changing gears. I'm going to go with uh, UNC Chapel Hill administrators. Uh, Jane Stansel, a higher ed reporter, reported this week that uh, a number of them are getting raises of 1 to 10 percent retroactive to last year. Um, and uh, one of the bigger raises is going to the athletic director, whose base salary is now um, higher than the chancellor's. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to say uh, the administrators who uh, are uh I'm going to get some bigger paychecks. So we got three in the hat. Um, Joe Biden. Then we got the sort of collective uh, admission of the uh, UNC Chapel Hill administrators. And then Petey Pablo. Um, I think I'm going to have to go with that, with Petey Pablo. Yes. I mean, it's just, if, <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to ignore him. So, And, and can we end the Domecast with a short excerpt of uh, Petey Pablo's fine uh, yeah, Pro we, Panthers song? Yeah, we, 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 can, we can snip something in there. And um, Colin, thank you. Lynn Bonner, thank you. Craig Jarvis, thank you. We will see you guys yeah, next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 